Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Animal Files here on WGLRO Radio. We have been talking about animal welfare and animal rights. If you've been listening to us for the last couple of weeks, you know there's a lot of overlap. You know there's a lot of differences. And you also know kind of where we fall on either of that spectrum. This week, we are going to talk about animal welfare science, what it is what organizations are utilizing it, the challenges and how it all comes together and where we can really find that balance that we keep talking about, because it really is about balance and finding that balance is how we are going to help the animals best. So I'm going to turn it over to Miranda and we are going to start. So what is animal welfare science? Hmm. It was definitely very interesting learning about what this was. You know, I came across it when I was gathering the information regarding animal rights and animal welfare. And I enjoyed being able to explore this a little bit more and learn what is involved with it. So what it is, it's the scientific study of the welfare of animals as pets in zoos, laboratories, on farms, and in the wild. Pretty much everybody. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. (laughs) Okay, saying that's a scientific study doesn't really say a whole lot. So let's break it down a little bit more. And we'll go more into detail of some examples at the end of this part one, as well as in the second half a bit more. Basically, it helps to improve animals' lives in an evidence-based way. And it touches on fascinating fundamental biological problems. For example, the nature of sentience. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) The world's first professor of animal welfare science was appointed by Cambridge University in 1986. Mm. So it actually has been around for a little while. Not an extremely long time, but it's still been in progress for a bit. He stated in 2011 that the numbers of animal welfare scientists are increasing rapidly. Nice. Subject is now being taught in all European countries and the number of university courses on animal welfare in Brazil has increased from one to over 60 in 15 years. Yes. I wonder if North America is on board with that. (laughs) (laughs) To some extent. (laughs) Do some research get another degree in our pockets. Right. Animal welfare science, and I'm going to also possibly refer to it as AWS just for short. It uses a variety of behavioral and physiological measures or indicators. It has become a more focused area of study in the 1990s when David Frazier, who is the author of Understanding Animal Welfare, referred to it as mandated science because it was specifically created to evaluate current and suggested policy issues to recommend if and how changes will be made to agribusiness and government operations. I like that. Mandatory science. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately it will help us as humans and our growth and helping us find the balance needed for this planet. Mm -hmm. I like it. Mandatory. And I think we'll learn so much more about animals and not just view them as mindless creatures, being able to understand how they're communicating with us, what their essential needs are, 
And we know now that their essential needs goes beyond just food, water, and shelter, which is what was largely thought to be their essential needs for a long period of time. So we still have a lot to learn. (laughs) Yes. Well, it just started in 1986. So we're in the infancy of animal welfare science. Mm -hmm. There are some recent organizations that have become involved in animal welfare science. So the U.S. is partially involved because the Scientists' Center for Animal Welfare, or otherwise known as SCA, is based in the U.S. Okay, cool. (laughs) We've got the Department of Animal Welfare and Anthrozoology Center at Cambridge University in the U.K., the Department of Animal Welfare Science Center at the University of Melbourne in Australia, the Department of Animal Welfare Science and Bioethics Center at Massey University in New Zealand, and the American College of Animal Welfare, or ACAW, was granted provisional recognition by the AVMA as a veterinary specialty organization in August 2012 to advance animal welfare through education, certification, and scientific investigation. Nice. That's a mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it covers everything, which is good. (laughs) Right. But as you can see, there are different places in the world that are getting on board with this and recognizing that this is necessary for science, for our progression in how we view and care for animals. Yeah. But as everything new, it has its challenges. So what are some of the challenges that are circulating around animal welfare science? One of the current challenges is that welfare seems to be defined in different ways in scientific literature. Yeah, so not everybody's on the same page. Right. Gotcha. So therefore, it makes it difficult to reach a consensus and an agreement on the type and use of the various welfare indicators. And the variations also depend on the type of animals, whether they are conservation animals, farm animals, or domestic animals. Which I would argue that it doesn't matter whether they're conservation, farm, or domestic, they all have the same and equal rights and should be treated equally. Right. It shouldn't matter, but where we are now? Too much money going into people's pockets. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> Just <a> <laughs> interjection there. <laughs> <laughs> The science and the chosen indicators that are intended to be used are meant to be separate from ethical considerations. Well, I guess being a science that makes sense, they're based on evidentiary proof. Mm -hmm. Things that can be monitored, checked off a list, whatever. Mm -hmm. They need proof. They need evidence. Right. And I think they're also trying to take emotion out of the equation. As it should be. Yes. As it should be. I mean, it is mm-hmm. science. Science mm-hmm. is not an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. As long as we are doing it from an unbiased standpoint and not trying to prove something that we have a biased opinion about. Because yeah. we've had experience with that in the past where... That happens and you get certain scientists who will 
kind of back up certain groups of people and other scientists who will back up other groups of people. Yeah, that's when you know emotions are getting into play or egos going into play. Mm -hmm. So I get it. But I would also argue that ethics have nothing to do with emotions. Mm. Because if something is breathing, if something is living a life separate from a human, that means they should be treated as sentient because they don't need us to survive. Mm -hmm. So ethical treatment, the ethical treatment of humans, the ethical treatment of animals, the ethical treatment of anything living on this planet, it's all about, how do I say it? It's all about the best of being, you know, a human who is running things for the most part. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I think ethics, there's no gray area. It's black or white. (sighs) You're doing something to better something or you're doing something to go against something. It's ethics. I mean, that's where I would argue. I know that could go down a a rabbit hole. There's lots of rabbit holes with this whole animal welfare, animal rights conversation. (laughs) Well, and I think that ethics get very closely tied with emotions. Yeah, because, but see, it shouldn't. I, I mean, yeah. I guess I guess it does. I mean, you know, but it, it because shouldn't. you know, you get some people who think it's ethical, who believe it's ethical to not use, like, not have human interference with animals in any way or form. That's their idea of ethics. But that's not ethical to me. That's I got an agenda. And I'm going to speak for the animals. See, and that's where we have the gray area because then people have different definitions of what an ethical consideration is. Yeah, I think that's why I lean more towards animal welfare because mm-hmm. you can have a little bit of this humanity. Mm-hmm. I would I would argue it's just humanity, the best of humanity, not humanity as it stands now, but the best of humanity looking at something without our ego without what we think they should be living their lives without control and just saying, you know what, they're breathing. They have a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to have our own choices, but the animal has to have a choice too. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a spider web (laughs) (laughs) and spiders deserve to live too. So stop killing them. Anyway. Um, (laughs) Even if you don't like them or find them creepy. (laughs) I'm scared to death of spiders, but you'll never find me killing one unless they trap me in a dark room and I can't get out. But still, (laughs) but that's a matter of life and death. Anyway, (laughs) I joke. Um, (laughs) But I think it's just that. I mean, if they are living, it doesn't matter what they look like or how they feel or whatever. They just should be allowed to live. Mm-hmm. You know, if something is existing and living without human interference, they should be treated equally as we treat our own. Mm-hmm. Guess that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So kind of tying into what we were just talking about another challenge is that culture has an effect on how animals are used in society. Mm, Yeah, that could be a big one. Mm -hmm. So this will affect what questions end up being asked and which animal welfare issues should be focused on. And the science can influence decisions about ethics, philosophy, sociology, economics, law, and politics. Mm. So there's a lot of considerations around this. Yeah. And it's good to be objective Mm -hmm. if you're going to influence that many elements of society. Mm -hmm. Another challenge is that 
Controlled experimental settings allow for more focus on individual animals and a greater variety of parameters can be measured because you've got a smaller group. Mm -hmm. But if you try to apply this out in the field, like let's say an entire farm, there are many more limitations in gathering the types of data needed to help determine the direction of animal welfare science because you've got such you can't really focus on the individual animals because you've got such a large group. So it ends up being that the group and the environment get focused on more than the individuals. Yeah. So I think animal welfare science is going to have to find their balance as it matures because, you know, I mean, I get the whole study things, you know, you want like these double blind studies where you have like a hundred people and you use that as one entity Mm -hmm. and you're really not focusing on the individual person. Like if you have 500 people in a scientific study and one person has a bad reaction or uh, an extraordinary reaction, good or bad, a lot of times the study is not going to focus on that person. They would have to open up another study on that one person. Mm -hmm. So I guess there are different things that need to be. And plus fact, when you're in the field, you have an awful lot of parameters that are different than if you're in a controlled setting. Right. And I think, well, I don't know enough about how studies operate, but I kind of wonder if a controlled experimental setting will be putting an animal in a true situation that they might experience in the real life. I agree with that. Yeah, it's hard when you have things to control, especially with animals, because animals respond to their environment like almost entirely. If an animal is in one environment, they're going to react completely differently if they're in a different environment, mm-hmm. you know, just like humans would. Right. I guess one of the differences between the humans and the animals is the humans are already aware that they're in an experiment, whereas non-human animals may not have that kind of awareness. Well, we have to talk to them and let them know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of serious. I mean, if you you have a conversation with the animals, I have conversations with my cat all the time, just to kind of give her a heads up that this is where we're going with it. And this is what we're going to do. And it's up to her to get that message or not. But I mean, you could have a conversation with them. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) And the last concern that we want to bring to you is that there is a concern that has been expressed that animal welfare science has focused on optimizing performance and productivity of animals for the benefit of humans, rather than understanding the lived experience, needs, and interest of those animals. Ah, yeah, I can see how that could be a major challenge. Again, agenda. Mm-hmm. We have to stop. Science should not have an agenda. No, it should be it a should benefit. Be 100% objective. Yeah, it should be an objective and it should just be. Right. And if you're doing it just for the benefit of humans, you're not truly embracing the spirit of whatever you're studying. Right. And yeah, because I said it should be about the benefit, but in both of those aspects, but to clarify that it should be about the benefit of who you're doing the study for. If you're studying animal welfare science for non-human animals, it should be a benefit for those non-human animals. Yes. Not for anybody else. Agreed. Just like if we do medical tests and stuff like that, 
well, again, that's kind of the gray area, but essentially, oh, that's, that's a tough one <laughs> to kind of go into because <laughs> to say it should only be for the benefit of, of the group that the medicine is for, but then if we're using animals to make, get medicate test medications for humans, then that still falls under that category. So yeah, I don't really know. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> How we tricky. Do that, so. It's, it's tricky. I, again, I think it goes down to what I was saying before about ethics. There's no emotion. Just look at it and, and utilize the best of humanity and not opinions and politics and emotions and whatever, and just say, okay, we're going to do a study about cows on a dairy farm, but let's make sure we let the cows have a voice. So we know what helps them as well. Again, we're talking balance. There is a way to help both the animal and the human. It can't be either or. And if that's what's happening with all of these animal rights advocates, if that's what's happening, then you're losing the whole point. You know, science is like the great equalizer. I think it's very objective. It shows you what is and what could be and what will be. And then it's up to us to make educated decisions based on that science. And when it comes to studies about animals, whether it's on a dairy farm, in a laboratory, in at someone's house, you need to have both what's best for the animal and what's best for the human involved in that study. Mm -hmm. There is a way to find the balance. And I think that's part of the conversation that maybe... I'm just seeing that's missing in this whole animal rights, animal welfare, animal welfare science conversation. And I've said it, how many times have I said the word balance in these last three episodes? <laughs> <laughs> we need to find that. And I think science, if they do it truly objectively, and my opinion, truly ethically, that balance will be found. Mm -hmm. My thoughts, my <laughs> opinion. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the animal welfare science that is being used with working dogs. Okay, good examples. I like examples. <laughs> this comes from a website called Frontiers in Veterinary Science. And if you want to check it out, it's at www.frontiersin.org. Simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> so frontiersin.org. Some of the things that are being explored in this particular example is concerns around animal consent and vulnerability. So let's actually go back a moment and just kind of refresh your memory, or if you haven't heard us talking about it before, explaining what working dogs actually means. Mm -hmm. Because there's a variety of ways that they can be in a working role. They could be doing things like assisting police or assisting in the military. They could be involved with search and rescue. They could be involved in farming, such as with herding sheep or herding the animals. And that's H-E-R-D, not H-U-R-T. <laughs> <laughs> it could be things like service dogs that support people with different physical or mental health challenges or therapy dogs that go to the hospitals and seniors' homes and places like that. So there's so many different areas that working dogs are involved in. Some of them can potentially put them in harm's way, mm -hmm. and some of them do not. 
or are unlikely to. So animal welfare science is considering aspects such as the animal behavior, their stress physiology, their genetics, their technology to learn more about what working dogs need and want, and to optimize performance in the specialized tasks we require of them. That, again, I think can be a bit of a gray area because optimizing performance in what we're requiring of them may not necessarily be in the best interest of the animal. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, what, you're going to jack up your dog on steroids so they can take down a criminal much faster and easier? No, that's (laughs) that's not very beneficial. I don't think they do that, but that's an extreme example. (laughs) Right. And I think there would be more clarification needed on what exactly is meant by that. Yeah. As well as there needs to be good, transparent animal management practices, and that the five domains, which we discussed last week, are frequently assessed. Mm, That would help. Yeah. Just as a quick reminder of what the five domains are, it's involving nutrition, environment, health, behavior, and the mental state by going into a lot of different, more detailed aspects of all of those areas. So we need to find out how can we judge the process of determining what is best for these working animals? How can we tell with certainty if they are fully accepting the work they are being asked to do? That goes into observation, Mm -hmm. you know, objective assessment. Does the animal look like it's wanting to work, especially with dogs? You know, if they're happy, Mm -hmm. you know, if they're happy, you know, if they're stressed, they wear their emotions on their sleeves and observation and awareness is going to be the key factor in figuring out how to tell with certainty that the animals are fully accepting the work. Hmm. For the most part, agree, but at the same time, I partially disagree because yeah, dogs may show their emotions openly, but the problem is there's so many people who don't recognize what they're expressing. For example, a lot of people think that if the dog is wagging its tail, it's happy. Yeah. And that's not always the case. Right. So we need to fully understand what their communication signals are. Yeah. We need to get them to listen to the animal files. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll help you learn that. (laughs) A little shameless plug there. (laughs) But I mean, that's what we talk about. We talk about learning how to recognize the communications that are coming from your animal Mm -hmm. with certainty. Mm -hmm. And there's where the observation comes in. So listen to us here at the Animal Files. If you ever have any questions, you can always reach out to us. Our email is theanimalfilespodcast at gmail.com. Just hit us up. Ask us a question. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're everywhere. Just search for the Animal Files podcast on Facebook. It is the Animal Files official. That is our page. The Animal Files community. If you want to have interaction and individual attention, that is the Animal Files community. Twitter is the Animal Files and Instagram is the Animal Files official. We also have a Patreon, the Animal Files official. Just do a search. You'll find us and we'll answer any of your questions and we'll help you learn to recognize what your animal is trying to tell you. Mm -hmm. Observation and awareness. Mm -hmm. And with that, we'll see you in a bit.
and we are back. Thanks for listening to The Animal Files here on WGLRO Radio. We are finishing off our series of animal welfare versus animal rights versus animal welfare science. And today we are going into the science part. We just talked about some of the challenges. We talked about who's utilizing it, what it is. Now we're going to talk about some of the most exciting discoveries in animal welfare science and how we can utilize animal welfare science and bring it into practice. So let's talk about some of these exciting discoveries. Well, it's actually one in particular. Okay. This exciting discovery is welfare has been found to be influenced by the level of cognitive stimulation in the environment. Okay. This was written about by Becca Franks in an article called The Advances in Agricultural Animal Welfare in 2018. So this goes back to what I was saying, that an animal will respond differently depending on the environment it's in. Mm -hmm. Ah, cool. So it could be the physical environment, but it could also be the situation. Yeah. All right. So what was found? Well, learning has been found to be its own reward and can on its own induce positive emotions. Animals may, in addition, react emotionally to their own achievements. So not unlike humans, you know, when we learn something, we feel, I don't know, like a sense of accomplishment or, mm -hmm. or something like that. I don't know if that's really the right word, but kind of yeah, you kind of get a little bit of a, yeah, yeah, you get a little boost. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what just came into my mind is that when we first got Maisie and Frankie, we have a five foot cat tower mm -hmm. and we got that early on and it was before they were big enough to really climb it and I remember I even took a picture of it because it was so cute the first time Maisie got to the top of the tower she was sitting up there all proud of herself <laughs> and it was the coolest thing because she was so tiny because she's still very tiny but yeah. when she made it to the top of that cat tower for the very first time you can just feel this just sense of pride oh so it wasn't something you her. visually saw it was something you felt from her yeah yeah well the look on her face was like look at me I'm up here now oh yeah you know because she had <laughs> tried so often and she wasn't able to get to the top her brother was much bigger than he she was so he was up at the top pretty quick and she just couldn't get there but the very first time she did she was so proud of herself and I was like I, I it touched my heart it really did because you can sense it you can sense that accomplishment and you see it with dogs when they're doing agility courses like the first time they do an agility course all the way through you can see they're like oh, I did it I did it yeah, that's cool that they found that. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. And many species have been found to seek out cognitive or mental stimulation and appear to benefit when such forms of enrichment are incorporated into the routines. Well, this is something else we've talked about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Oh my gosh, if you if you live with animals and you do stuff like enrichment play and enrichment feedings, you can see that. I mean, it's so this is again where the observation comes into play. The more you observe your animal objectively, you can see how much they get from their lives. Mm -hmm. They see how much they get from the things that they do in their environment and the accomplishments and when they're not feeling like they're getting anything done. Right. Yeah. When they're not getting that enrichment, that mental stimulation, 
then that's when we start seeing behavior issues because they can become depressed, they can become anxious, they can start having behavioral issues like doing damage to the home, different things like that. So the enrichment is so important. Yeah, because they don't know what to do with all that excess energy that they have if they're not getting an outlet. Mm -hmm. Cool. (laughs) Environments with low cognitive stimulation or enrichment activities can be a welfare risk as they may induce boredom and anhedonia which is a new word for me, but apparently that means the inability to feel pleasure. I would probably think a lot of humans feel that too. Mm -hmm. Interesting. However, on the other side of that is if the environment is too challenging for them, it can lead to frustration and in the extreme learned helplessness. Mm. And I think, Interesting. I think I can relate to that. I can't think of a specific situation, but just in terms of a feeling around it, I think that I have experienced that in my life. Mm. Yeah. Just like humans get overwhelmed. Animals can get overwhelmed. I know when I get overwhelmed, I shut down. Yeah. So it would make sense that, I mean, I'm an animal. You're an animal. Right. Our listeners are an animal. Yeah. You're an animal too. Don't forget it. (laughs) But it would make sense that we would all feel that. Yeah. And I think that that can be a real thing in our school system Mm -hmm. because kids are forced to learn certain things in the curriculum. Doesn't matter whether or not they have this, uh, the adeptness for it Mm -hmm. or not. And if they don't get it, then they're made to feel like they're not intelligent, but not everybody is skilled in everything. Yeah. And our schools are all about memorization anyway. It's not about incorporating and really bringing the information. And there's no passion involved. If you find somebody who has no passion Mm -hmm. for or has a passion for math and doesn't have a passion for English, they're automatically marked as a bad student because they're only excelling in one area when they're not paying attention to the passion that person has Mm -hmm. and, you know, using that as a jumping off point Mm -hmm. and how to help that child become better all around, Mm -hmm. embrace the passion, bring that in. It's not all about robots. So therefore we can have children who end up having learned helplessness Mm -hmm. and extreme frustration because their needs are not being met. And the same thing goes with any other animal. Agreed. So it's important to develop an understanding and calibrate the level of cognitive stimulation to which the animals are exposed. Mm -hmm. So we need to assess how the animal responds to different situations, different environments, different activities, and make the appropriate changes to create a balanced stimulation. There's that word again. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So this not only goes for the animal welfare science aspect of it, this can be applied to so many areas in society. Yeah, totally. It's all about balance. Mm Mm-hmm. And stimulation most likely needs to vary because if an animal figures out a puzzle or is exposed to the same learning experience repeatedly, they're likely going to lose interest. Just like us. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Ask anybody who works, does the same thing day in, day out, day in, day out. They just turn into I hate to say it, robots. Mm. They're just getting a paycheck. Right. There's no excitement in anything. And and the the problem with our lives are so much longer than the animals' lives. And we also have a different way of coping than the animal. The animal doesn't have the same coping skills that a human does. Mm -hmm. So they will end up having more issues if they are in that boredom stage quicker 
than us humans because we've been conditioned to think that, okay, get a job, work till you're 65, get a paycheck, take care of your family, whatever. So we have that. The animals doesn't have that. To some extent. Yeah. And then of course they only live a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So anything that would take us 50 years to get to will take them like four. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of disgruntled employees out there. Yes, we do. (laughs) So this is a, a particular study that was done that chose an example of what we were just talking about. Kristen Hagen, who is a scientist, and Donald Broom, who is a biologist and a professor, ran a well-controlled study in 2004 in which they found that cows respond to learning with a physiological pattern that is consistent with pleasure. And you can find Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you can find out more details about this at www.researchgate.net. But it's interesting that they chose cows and not a domesticated, well, I mean, it is domesticated, but like a a pet. You know, I think it's great that it shows that cows do have an intelligence. And that's, that's one of the things I love about this. Oh, yeah. Cows, horses, pigs. Yeah. They all, I mean, pigs are smarter than some humans. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) But no, cows are amazing. And I love it. I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can actually watch cows. They play fetch. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen one or two of those videos. They're amazing. (laughs) They're like the best. And they get so happy. They'll run around the field and jumping around and whatever. Yeah. They're just as excitable as a dog. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful to see when they're happy. Yeah. Oh, gosh. A happy cow is the most amazing thing (laughs) to see. I remember watching one that was uh, about a bull. And it's like this big, massive bull, which everybody has fear of because they think, oh, if you're in front of a bull, they're going to charge you. (laughs) And this bull was also running after this big inflatable ball that uh, its owner had for it. So (laughs) Horses do too. You can look at horses playing with balls and donkeys just because they're typically farm animals doesn't mean they have a different brain than our cats and dogs. Right. They're just not allowed to expand on that because we don't bring them in. Well, some people do, but we don't bring them into our homes, Mm -hmm. you know? And I actually just saw a video last night or this morning about a honey badger. (laughs) And I don't really know the reason why this badger was being kept in an enclosed area. It wasn't like a conservation or something like that. But every enclosure they created, this badger figured out a way to get out. (laughs) Smart little guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they apparently discovered that their brains are, well, not their brain size, I guess, but their their brain usage Mm -hmm. is quite a bit larger than their size because they're not that big in size. No. But they have a very strong capability of figuring things out. Yeah, well, it goes with some birds too. Look at crows. How amazing they I mean they'll remember your face for years. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly smart. And you ask anybody who's ever had a parrot as a pet, it's, it's tough to make sure that they don't get out of their cage in the middle of the night because they are smart. They will figure right. it out. <laughs> Somebody made a a joke on that badger video saying that, oh, you know, once the badger was released to to live free on its own or whatever, then it would be trying to figure out how to get back in. (laughs) 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 Maybe not, but it was still, I thought it was kind of funny. (laughs) 
you know what? We've always said that if an animal is getting everything it needs and requires and wants, it's not going to leave. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. So, so what are some of the things that this study with the cows, as we digress, went off <laughs> right. topic? Because yeah. animals are just amazing. <laughs> but um, what are some of these other things that we learned about the cows? Well, the study itself involved 12 heifers that were aged 7 to 12 months. They were divided into two groups. One had a food reward provided to them together with a learning experience. And the other group just had the food reward, but no learning experience. Oh, okay. They found that the heifers who had the learning experience showed an increase in heart rate when they succeeded in opening up the gate to access their food reward, as well as when they made a learning improvement. Nice. There you go. Animals love accomplishment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the other group did not have to learn anything to access the food reward. They just had to wait a certain amount of time. So there wasn't really any change for them. Yeah, it was just normal. Yeah. <laughs> There wasn't really any benefit. It was probably just, you know, a given that, oh, we're going to get this food reward. Yeah. I work harder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or they probably didn't have the option, so they couldn't choose to work harder. Yeah. I would think if they were able to take those cows and put them in the same thing and they had to choose between the learning experience of the food and just the food, mm -hmm. you may have some lazy cows that'll go just to the food, but you may actually have a bunch of cows choose to learn something new. Yeah, possibly. And I, I know from my own personal experience is if I have to work for something, make some effort to achieve something, I have much more appreciation for it compared to if yeah. I'm just given it, you know, it's probably, probably similar. Yeah. Just like humans, there are people who just want things handed to them on a silver platter. Mm -hmm. There are going to be animals that just want things handed to them right. on a silver platter. But they're not probably <laughs> going to be very happy because... No, they'll be bored. Yeah. Boredom in animals is not a good thing. <laughs> so another aspect of this discovery, not just with the cow study, but just in general, is that most cognitive research has taken place with primates. But new evidence is suggesting that pigs and goats seem to benefit from cognitive stimulation as well, which See? to me, I'm kind of going people. like, duh. But <laughs> I know, it's like, duh. <laughs> oh my gosh, the way we categorize animals as, no, you're stupid. Oh, you're smart. Oh, you're stupid. Oh, you don't think. I mean, come on. We all started from the same freaking cells. I mean, come on, <laughs> we're just, I mean, we're all the same. We're all animals. It just makes sense that cows, goats, and pigs are going to get the same responses that a human would with certain situations. It just makes, yeah. I don't know, anybody who thinks that not, it's just weird. Well, I <laughs> I think a lot of the problem has come into play because we're comparing intelligence of humans to the intelligence of other animals. And sometimes I wonder with humans how much intelligence humans actually have, but <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh <laughs> 
we're different species. So you can't make that comparison. We all have intelligence in our own way. I mean, yeah, it's like if you judge the intelligence of a goldfish on how it can climb a tree, you're going to think it's stupid. I mean, that's one of those like old proverbs. I don't know who said it originally, but yeah, you can't. I mean, oh, so a fish can't walk on land. It must be stupid. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know. A toad can't fly. So they're dumber than a bird. Mm-hmm. Makes no sense. But most of the intelligence that I think humans have is book intelligence. Mm-hmm. Put most of us out in the wild to survive. We'd act just like animals if we don't have a, we know nothing different. Well, yeah, but most of us wouldn't even survive because we wouldn't have a clue how to survive in the wild. Yeah, but I think, you know, as an animal, a baby wolf Mm -hmm. doesn't know how to survive in the wild until its mother teaches it. True. So if you are born to parents who aren't book smart and have only lived in the wild and had to to scramble and if, you know, if it's generations of, you know, this is how we live, we forage for our food, we make our quote unquote nest Mm -hmm. and that's how we live, then their descendants will only know that. So they will survive just fine because that's all they know. If you throw a baby into the wild with no education, yeah, they're going to. But same with a raccoon. Mm -hmm. If you throw a raccoon in the wild without the mother to help it, it's not going to survive. Right. Or same if you take them away from the wild for too long and then try to reintroduce them and they've had too much interaction with humans, then they're also going to have problems. We have to stop gauging intelligence by what our human brains think should be intelligence. Mm -hmm. So this cognitive research is limited in this particular area, but music was found to increase play behavior in piglets. Oh, I like that. (laughs) And increase positive emotional states in horses. That's cool. See, music connects us all. It is. It's universal. Yeah. So how do we translate animal welfare science into practice? Mm. Now, this is where the tricky part comes in, probably (laughs) mainly because of all the different varying beliefs out there and being such a new science and all that part of it. It's a complex issue because of all the different values that are playing a role in deciding which animal welfare objectives to prioritize. Scientific evidence appears to be a secondary consideration for the basis of any required changes. So I didn't quite know when they say it's a secondary consideration, what it's a secondary consideration to maybe politics Mm -hmm. or influencers or something. Ego. Ego. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting. Secondary. That doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be objective then. It should be all things should be equal. Mm -hmm. I'm not a scientist. I'm just guesstimating, but. Of course, the other challenge with science is that a lot of the studies and that that are done are based on whether they can obtain money to do those studies and investigations. Yeah, that is the biggest problem. That's the biggest problem. That's why you always want to go with peer reviewed because Mm -hmm. you don't want to follow like if if it's say a fur company Mm -hmm. doing an animal welfare science study, Mm. it's going to be skewed. Yeah, it's going to be skewed if it is a pork industry the factory farms big agro Mm -hmm. doing a study on pigs and their intelligence it's going to be skewed Mm -hmm. so you want to go with the most objective source and peer-reviewed veterinarians that aren't in the pockets of anybody else Mm -hmm. those that are trying to do the lord's work 
<laughs> to help these animals. Those are the ones that you want to listen to. Those that can be completely objective and put the animal first. Like we always say here at the Animal Files, put the animal first, give them a voice mm -hmm. and then work from that position mm -hmm. as opposed to the human ego, the politics, the industries, the independent companies. I think that's where a lot of the gray area comes in is you have to really do your research, find out what the study or who is doing the study, mm -hmm. who's funding the study. Right. And then always use your own discernment. Yeah. I think that's one of the, one of the problems I've noticed in the last few years is that people blindly believe in a study. It's like, oh, well, this study says that this is good. Okay. Well then I guess it's okay for me to have it or something like that. And they don't really look into it any further. It's like, okay, if the media says this study is good, then I guess it must be good. Or if this particular doctor said it was good, then it must be good. But they don't really look beyond that and investigate mm -hmm. all the behind the scenes, like who, yeah. who funded this study? How many variants are there in there? Or like, how did they choose their group? How large is the group? Mm -hmm. You know, all of these different aspects. And I would add how many other studies contradict that one study. Mm, that's a good one too, to consider. Because if you have one study that says one way and then 20 that says, no, it's not that way. It's this way. Mm -hmm. And all those other 20 agree, then that one study is definitely skewed in some way. Right. And of course, vice versa. <laughs> but I would also say, even if there's 20, that's good. You still need to look into the background of them. Absolutely. Because yes. you could still end up having 20 that are skewed that all, they all kind of collaborated together in saying, let's try to get this result. True, true, true. Yeah. Do your research, find out who's funding the study and make sure it's independent. Mm -hmm. So another thing we need to consider when we want to try to put animal welfare science into practice is that it's important for the change makers to adopt a continuous improvement model by engaging the people who work with the animals to be involved in the process. Yep. I would agree. Talk to the people in the trenches. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because they're the ones that are going to have the most information. They're right there. And I think this is a real positive thing, too, is that veterinarians are now becoming board certified in animal welfare. Nice. So hopefully that is going to shift how the veterinarian associations will operate. Hopefully. And maybe we can push back on all these policymakers that keep forcing veterinarians to behave in a way that does not benefit the animals. Mm -hmm. And if they choose not to, and there's a lot of veterinarians that are like, what? You want me to hurt this animal? But the government will blacklist them. Mm -hmm. And that needs to stop because there's a lot of incredible veterinarians out there that are working really, really hard to make the lives better for these animals. And the government should be out of the mix. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the government official should get certified. Oh, <laughs> animal <be>. welfare <laughs> now that would be something. <laughs> that would be awesome. Mandatory to be a congressman or a senator. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My true colors are coming out again. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, maybe if that universal declaration on animal welfare gets accepted, maybe mm. then things could shift a little bit more that way. Yep. We need to talk to the UK lawmakers. Like, okay, you're already starting to do good work. So now let's let's just spread this across the yeah. globe. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> when we focus our attention more on the animals and observe their behaviors, their body language and health, we'll be able to get a much clearer idea on how well the animal is thriving. Remember thriving, not just surviving. Instead of placing our own misconceived ideas of what an animal needs or doesn't need. I love that. Just what I was saying. Get your freaking <laughs> ego out of the equation. <laughs> <laughs> And just like with any other science, animal welfare is continuously evolving through evaluation, investigations, research, understanding, plus refining the whole process and the type and use of welfare indicators that are going to be used. Which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. The more mature the science gets, the more factors we take into play, the more we get rid of the ego and start to put the animal first, giving them a voice and realizing they are just as sentient as humans. They just don't have the same needs as we do, but they have other needs because they're different species. Mm -hmm. That does not make them less than, doesn't make them dumber, doesn't make them less intelligent, doesn't make them unable to survive on their own without us making decisions on their behalf. Mm -hmm. I say that very sarcastically. You guys didn't see my face, but it contorted into like, really people? <laughs> um, <laughs> It needs to mature. I mean, veterinary science right now is still, it's in the teenager phase. Right. You know, it really has not matured. This started in 1986. It's still in the prepubescent <laughs> stage. So we need to let it mature. We need to make a point to allow that expansion, allow the new data sets to come in, allow the new information to come in, and also allow our, I guess, acceptance of the new information. Because mm -hmm. I think that's the key. You have to accept the new information. Yeah. You can't just say, no, no, no. They said 10 years ago that it was this. I can't accept this. Mm. Well, yeah. Digging your heels in like a stubborn toddler is not going to work. It's not going to help anybody. No. And I think that spreads across the animal of our science, animal rights, and animal welfare. I mean, you have to look at all of this. And this is why we've done this series for you guys. Because these are all of the three elements that should be involved in the conversation. One is not better than the other. Mm -hmm. They exist in the same sphere. And so learning to take all of the things and also see where you land on that spectrum to create the balance in your life, as well as the balance in your animals' lives, that's how we make change. That's how the world for these animals changes. We cannot be toddlers stamping our feet saying, no, I can't listen to anything else you say because that's not right. No, even if something doesn't resonate with you, that doesn't mean you are right and they are wrong. Mm -hmm. It just means that that's not part of your truth. Right. We need to understand that and we need to allow for all of these things to happen. But the one thing we cannot allow is we cannot allow the animals animals to be ignored. Mm -hmm. They need a voice. They need to be included in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And even though there are quite a few similarities between how humans and other animals operate, there's also quite a few differences. And if we keep humanizing them and trying to place our emotions, our way of thinking, our way of doing things on them, then we're not really 
taking into consideration their needs. We're just making assumptions then. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at them as individual species and individuals in general. And this is why the scientific aspect is going to be much more helpful because then we learn how to observe them and how to recognize how they are responding to the different environment situations and activities and whatnot that they are involved in Mm -hmm. and not just make changes because you think, oh, well, as a person, as a human, I wouldn't like that. So I'm going to prevent that animal from being in that situation because I know I don't like that. Well, just because you don't like it, that doesn't mean even that another human wouldn't like it. It's your own personal Mm -hmm. experience with that. So you can't put your ideology and emotions and all of that onto another person or another animal. Well said. Well said. And I completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully there are many of you that agree as well. And we can all get together and give these animals a voice. So I guess that is that for this week. Again, if you have questions, you can reach out to us via email, theanimalfilespodcast at gmail.com. You can reach out on Facebook. Our page is The Animal Files Official, our group, The Animal Files Community. We are on Instagram, The Animal Files Official. We are on Twitter, The Animal Files. We are on Patreon, so support us if you can. We would love to be able to build this show for you and bring more content to you. That is the Animal Files official as well. Mm -hmm. And also we're in the process of creating a resource page for you on our website, theanimalfilespodcast.com, as well as in the process of creating a pet health journal for you. And we are going to have some downloadable options for you. And eventually we will also have an actual journal that you will be able to purchase as well. We're growing in leaps and bounds just for you guys. And if you go to our website, theanimalfilespodcast.com, you can get the links to our Patreon and to our merch site. We do have merchandise that you can purchase. Mug, t-shirts, hoodies, all there. Mm -hmm. It'll be fun. (laughs) So join us. And with that, I guess we are ready to uh, head out for the week. Mm -hmm. We'll see you back here next week. Bye for now. Take care.